Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. Since election night 2016, the streets of the U.S. have rung with resistance. People all over the country have woken up with a conviction that they must do something to fight inequality in all its forms. But many are wondering what it is they can do. In this series, we'll be talking with experienced organizers, troublemakers, and thinkers who have been doing the hard work of fighting for a long time. They'll be sharing their insights on what works, what doesn't, what has changed, and what is still the same. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. Hi, my name is Sarah Christopherson. I am the Policy Advocacy Director for the National Women's Health Network and for our joint initiative, Raising Women's Voices for the Healthcare We Need. All right. So we are talking um, a few days after the Republicans once again failed to get votes for some sort of, quote, repeal and replace plan for the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I know your organization was involved in fighting for the ACA, has been involved in fighting for health care for a while. Um, so I wanted to do some sort of long view questions and talk about, um, start with the ACA and the sort of, um, for whatever flaws it has, it did change the conversation about around healthcare in a way that Republicans have found very difficult to change back. Right, absolutely. And so, you know, we can we can talk in a few minutes about, you mentioned the flaws. I mean, I think yeah. everybody would recognize that there are things that need to be fixed. Yeah. Some underlying issues with the law from birth and some things that Republicans exacerbated and sabotaged that right. now need to be fixed. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. I mean, it, what has been exciting, strangely exciting about these repeal efforts is that it really has stopped people and made them think about everything they gained through the Affordable Care Act. Right. And as you know, made Affordable Care Act incredibly popular, but it's also changed this conversation about how people think about health care and the role of government in providing health care. And so one of the reasons I think Republicans have really struggled in their repeal efforts is they're kind of playing on our terms, right? So even among Republicans, you get polls showing that there is now an expectation after the passage of the Affordable Care Act that people have access to affordable health care and that there is a role for government to play in providing that. And so in these repeal efforts, Republicans haven't really been able to come out in most cases and say, actually, we're comfortable taking insurance away from 20 million people, 24 million people, they had to dodge and hide what their actual repeal proposals will do because even some of their core base voters really liked the coverage they gained. They liked the Medicaid coverage they gained. Um, they liked the Affordable Care Act coverage. And there's this expectation that it's just no longer appropriate for, you know, an incredibly wealthy society to just leave millions of people uninsured. So yeah. it really has been a game changer. Yeah. in terms of just how we think about healthcare and access to healthcare. Yeah. So last week, right, they voted on three different proposals. They voted on straight repeal of the Affordable Care Act. They voted on this plan that grew out of the House bill, the, the Better Care Reconciliation Act. And then they voted on this skinny repeal thing. And so one of the things that a couple people noted about the skinny repeal was that it... Um, left the Medicaid expansion in place and actually repealed the market portions of the bill, which are the inherently conservative proposals that came out of the Heritage Foundation. Um, right. And so, yes, I want to talk about the Medicaid expansion in particular as part of this thing. Um, 
and that the fact that the market portions of it are actually the parts of the ACA that are less popular and that Republicans thought they might be able to get rid of. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and so, you know, there's a, there's a lot to, to talk about here, but even among Trump voters, you know, when you look at polling among Trump voters, they're really happy with their Medicaid coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Medicaid is good coverage and it polls really well. And when you look at some of the Trump voters um, who had, you know, marketplace plans, so they were in private health insurance plans in the individual market, and they were exposed to a lot of that free market risk, yeah. you know, higher deductibles, they were really envious of the folks on Medicaid. Yeah. So, you know, they looked to Trump and his promises that he wouldn't cut Medicaid and that he'd give great coverage to everybody. And they looked at what folks on Medicaid had, and that's what they wanted. And yeah. so, you know, far from, from those folks, many of them, casting a vote to repeal Medicaid, to, to get rid of the Medicaid expansion, to cap and slash funding for traditional Medicaid. They were looking at Medicaid and saying, we want that. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, it's been, it's been really difficult, too, for Republicans because, again, this, how they've been sort of disingenuous and how they've been couching their own bills. You know, they have really complained about things in the Affordable Care Act, like deductibles that are too high. And, you know, I agree, the deductibles are too high. What their bills would do is it would exacerbate that in all cases. CBO has said, you know, this would lead to more costs being put onto consumers. This would lead to more exposure to market risk. And so then again, we come back to this, what Republicans have wanted to do, as long as they stick with kind of nice sounding phrases like freedom and, and free market they can kind of get away from the fact that when people think about healthcare, they don't want to be exposed to market risk, right? They want good coverage at reasonable prices. The dependability of knowing that coverage is going to be there even after they get sick. People don't want to have to, you know, on their way to the ER, stop and say, wait, is this in my health plan? Or, you know, they want to do that kind of exposure to market risk. So it has been interesting. And then, of course, You mentioned the so-called skinny repeal bill. They immediately tried to rebrand that as the freedom bill. And I think (laughs) it is the freedom to no longer have insurance, you know, lose your insurance, have your insurance taken away from you bill. Yeah. But where they wanted to get rid of, you know, the individual mandate, of course, as you mentioned, were originally a conservative idea. Right. That this is how you, this is how you create market participation in in, in a private insurance market that you can still have the consumer protection. You need that individual mandate. And so they were perfectly willing to get rid of the individual mandate and then let the private insurance markets blow up. And, you know, I I think you'd have to say that would push more and more people towards a single payer model or, you know, a, a public insurance model of some kind. Yeah. So their efforts, I think, could really really backfire on them. I mean, they've already backfired on them in terms of making the Affordable Care Act more popular and making single payer more popular. But, you know, if they, and and the repeal effort isn't dead. Right. It's sort of undead procedurally. Right. So what they voted down last week, these three amendments, they could still theoretically come back, bring back that underlying bill. Right. Ram it through with 50 votes from the vice president, right? It's sort of an un undead procedurally right yeah um 
but they could really, they could really, if they, if they somehow manage to do that, end up sabotaging themselves, I think. Yeah, it is. It is this sort of interesting thing, too, right? Because to keep it at a 50 vote threshold rather than a 60 vote threshold, um, because presumably Democrats would filibuster any attempt to undo parts of or the whole thing. Um, they have to do it through budget reconciliation, which was ironically how the original Affordable Care Act was passed in the first place. Um but that limits. Yeah, so let me let me yeah. let me push back though okay. a little bit on that because yeah. I want to. This is like my um my hobby horse. I want to push back <laughs> a tiny bit on that okay. because the Affordable Care Act was passed with sixty votes in the United mm-hmm. States Senate. So that like nine hundred and six page bill that we think of as the Affordable Care Act yeah. was passed regular order. I mean, I know you know this, yeah. and I know your readers know this, but you know, regular order, a month on the Senate floor, yeah, twenty five consecutive straight days passed by 60 votes, it was actually this much tinier 55-page uh, package of fixes right. that was passed through reconciliation. So that's part of the reason Republicans are struggling, right, is that their talking points for years have been ACA was rammed through a right. reconciliation. It's not true. And because it wasn't passed through reconciliation, it was passed through regular order, they can't really do everything they want to do through reconciliation. Right. right. So they're kind of placed it on the, their own petard, their own talking points have caught up with them. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to look at that, right? Because, yeah, when you, um, you know, on Twitter, people sort of love the uh, digging up old tweets from politicians that describe what they're doing right. now. Um, that kind of game has been really interesting around healthcare, right? Because yeah, Mitch McConnell's whole thing was, this was undemocratic and how dare you. And the one that I'm really surprised didn't get revived actually was death panels, considering that like this (laughs) bill would literally have been a death panel for people. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think advocates for healthcare tried to point out that literally taking health insurance away from people will result in hundreds of thousands of people dying prematurely. And, you know, you had Republicans, I think, I'm from Utah, so I think even my own Senator Orrin Hatch pointed out, or had said something along the lines, oh, that's so inappropriate, you can't, you can't say those kinds of things. <laughs> so it's literally true that if you take health insurance away from people and they can't access health care, some of them die. Right. <laughs> it's not, a, it's right. not sort of like an untested hypothesis here. Right. Um, but yes, it is sort of surprising that, that, that death panels didn't get more traction this time around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when we're looking at the things that, um, sort of going forward, right, there are still problems with the ACA. There are, um, and Trump is threatening to sort of sabotage it from the inside. They've already cut funding for things like helping people get on the exchanges. Um, so Tell us a little bit about where sort of things will stand if the Republicans have not passed and cannot pass any sort of bill. Where are things with the program that we've got? So insurance companies need to set their rates pretty soon for the next year. And if Trump is threatening to not fund a part of the bill that, frankly, he's legally obligated to fund, I mean, this is sort of the, you know, under the law, insurance companies are required to offer these this support, this support in paying deductibles to low-income people, and then the feds are responsible for reimbursing them. And 
you know, if Trump fails to do that, not only could we see big premium spikes, we could see insurance companies taking the federal government to court, getting that money several, you know, years later, after people pay out these incredibly high premiums, after some insurance companies have dropped out of markets. Um, and as you mentioned, so not only is he threatening to sabotage the APA, he's already taken a lot of steps, right? He's hinted that he might not enforce the individual mandate. He cut off funding for advertising open enrollment. He shortened the open enrollment period that people could get coverage. So, you know, people might find in the middle of December that suddenly that's too late for them to sign up. So he's already taking all of these steps. And he's so incredibly crass in how he describes it that I'm going to hurt people, but I'm not going to own it. They're going to blame the other party. Yeah. Right? So never mind that no American president should want to hurt his own constituents his own people for political gain, kind of putting all of that aside for a minute, it's really an open question of how Congress responds to this. He's also threatened to go after Congress's own compensation, healthcare um, premiums support. So how Congress responds, you know, in the ACA debate, we've seen people like Lisa Murkowski kind of really bravely stand up to that kind of bullying and push back, and it's really counterproductive. And then we see people like Dean Heller, who seems to have crumbled right. in response to Trump's bullying. And just that picture of him sitting next to Trump laughing makes me sort of cringe at the sort of craven, crumbling aspect of it. Right. So how Congress responds, I think, is an open question. But there's definitely, from some members of Congress, that they don't want to see the exchanges fail whether because they really care about people or because they don't want to take the political blame, but that there could be some movement towards taking, I think, some common sense steps. So among them, funding these subsidies to help low-income people get lower deductibles. And then, um, you know, some of the, some of the, there have been some sweeteners in these bad Republican repeal bills right. that certainly Democrats and, and advocates for, for health to get on board, you know, a state stabilization fund that helps smooth out some of these premium costs. You know, there are some other really exciting proposals, including letting people buy into Medicaid. Right. So yeah. if there's a county that doesn't have um, a private insurance option, letting people buy, you know, use their ACA subsidies to buy into Medicaid. That could be a really exciting option. Right. It's only now, because you're exactly right, they tried three different repeal efforts in the Senate, and none of those three could get to 50. Yeah. That now, finally, finally, the sort of more centrist Republicans can stand up and say, look, guys, we tried it your way. We tried the partisan-only approach. Now we have to work in a bipartisan fashion to do things to stabilize markets. So it's sort of like we almost maybe had to go through this whole process of proving that Republicans couldn't do a crazy partisan repeal to get them to be able to come to the table to work in a bipartisan way. That's my hope. I, mean, I might be too optimistic here, but that's kind of my hope. 
Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the, the sweeteners and I did want to talk about um, one of the particular things that a couple of these people who um, ended up caving, um, <laughs> but were pushing for was was funds to deal with the opioid crisis. I'm thinking about um, Shelley Capito in West Virginia, um, Rob Portman in, in Ohio, places that have been really devastated by the opioid crisis. Saw something this morning that Trump's commission to deal with the opioid crisis says that the best solution is to wait for it, expand Medicaid. Um, yeah. And so, Absolutely. yeah, so I wanted to, to talk about that a little bit in particular in the way that this, um, you know, the, the thing that people were trying to do to buy off these Republicans is the exact opposite of what their states really need. And, you know, it's also it's the exact opposite of what folks who work in substance use disorders would tell you. So, you know, and there's this great quote, I'm sure you've seen it from the Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich, who expanded Medicaid, right. who said, you know, this opioid funding is, I think he called it a spit in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the community that really focuses on substance abuse disorders will say, okay, fine that you're going to funnel $45 billion over 10 years, which sounds like a lot of money, but really isn't when you think about the scope of the problem, the 10-year window. But, you know, you're going to funnel that into sort of maybe like 12-step programs and other kind of programs targeted towards substance abuse. And then you're going to take away Medicaid coverage and ACA coverage, which is how folks treat their whole underlying conditions, right? So you might have a substance use disorder because you have an untreated chronic dental problem and you're self-medicating or an untreated chronic mental health condition and you're self-medicating depression. I mean, all of these things that if you had access to Medicaid, if you're lucky enough to be in a state that expands Medicaid, you can get full treatment for. But if you're just getting treatment for your substance abuse disorder, it's this revolving door because you haven't solved the underlying problem. Right. Right. And so I think, I think the, the community there that really focuses on this issue did a great job of saying, you know, this, this is fine if you want to give us money, but it's never going to have $45 billion in opioid funding. It's never going to make up for $800 billion right. from cuts to Medicaid. Right. And that's just the first 10 years, right? The cuts to Medicaid the Senate was proposing in the next 10 years was something like $2 trillion. I mean, it was just yeah. insane. It was insane. Yeah. And of course... So, yeah. so but when I say yeah. sweeteners, I'm thinking more of things like you know, state stabilization funds, reinsurance programs, but some of these other things that they, that they threw at member, you know, in the house, I mean, it was absurd. They were going to cut $800 billion out of Medicaid and then they were going to come back and put in $8 billion in, you know, stabilization funds, $8 billion over 10 years. Okay. You know, I don't, it just, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous proportionally what they were proposing. Yeah. And of course the refusal to expand Medicaid in so many of these states was sort of the original sabotage of the Affordable Care Act. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's so funny because on the one hand, this Supreme Court decision in 2012, that made it optional for states, right? The ACA is built around the structure that everybody would expand Medicaid and there would be no coverage gap. For, for folks between 0% and 100% of poverty. Right. And the Supreme Court decision throws that all in the air. And then you've got some states that are expanding it, and 
The interesting thing about that dynamic, though, is that you then have Republican governors who put a lot of political capital on the line to expand Medicaid in their states. So, you know, Ohio, I mentioned, Arizona, there are a handful of others that now, because they have sort of personally invested political capital in making this sometimes controversial in their state's decision to expand Medicaid, now they're much more invested in it than potentially much more invested in it than if um, it had just been required. But the flip side is, in those states that don't have access to Medicaid, um, they have much less invested in saving the ACA. Right. So, yes, I mean, the original sabotage was, it's now, it's 19 states. And, the you know, when you look at those states, 10 of them are in the deep south. Right. And you really can see this sort of history of institutional racism when you look at those decisions to expand or not expand Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And so one thing we work, um, we really prioritize women, women's health, women of color in particular. And so when you look at what the ACA did, it dramatically lowered the uninsurance rate for women of color, which is fantastic. Right. But it actually, because those states, particularly the deep south states, refused to expand Medicaid, it widened the, sh the gap, which was like the, the share. So the total number of, of women of color who were uninsured went down. But for the people who remain uninsured, a higher percentage of that is women of color because of these geographic decisions that states made. And so, I mean, they're just, as a health policy advocate, it was so clear that what was driving these decisions not to expand Medicaid wasn't, you know, good fiscal policy. It wasn't good health outcomes. Like the, the data is really clear that states should be expanding Medicaid. There's obviously other issues going on that were driving these decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so last thing I want to do is talk about the, the movement that came together to stop all of these Republican efforts for repeal and what groundwork that's laid for moving forward towards a more universal system. Um, because a lot of the people who got involved in this and really worked hard to fight are people who ultimately their goal is single payer healthcare. Right. You know, it's been exciting. So I mentioned in my introduction that I worked with this joint initiative, Raising Women's Voices. Right. And it's a joint initiative with three organizations, the National Women's Health Network, the Merger Watch um, Project to Community Catalyst and the Black Women's Health Imperative. And we have these, we call them regional coordinators, but these low, state and local organizations around the country, we help them by giving them access to kind of all the information that we get in D.C., the, distilling the policy wonky details into something that's digestible for communities to, to really grab hold of. We try and share their voices kind of back to D.C. so that women's voices are being heard in the movement up here, women of color voices are being heard, LGBTQ voices are being heard up here. Um, but it's been so exciting to work with these organizations. So, you know, consumers for affordable health care, I'm just going to their name because I know they're asking them, but in Maine, um, the Wisconsin Women's Health Alliance in Wisconsin, Sister Reach in Tennessee, Transcro Pueblo in Arizona, like these organizations that have been doing this really incredible grassroots work to save the ACA, to save Medicaid, but also to just, again, build this movement around improving healthcare. And so that has been 
It's been really exciting. I come out of sort of more of a cut and dry policy world. I didn't come out of a movement building world. It's been really exciting for me to see just all of the people in these great local organizations, and I could rile them all off, who are doing this really great work, and then all of the people that they that are either coming out of the woodwork themselves or that these organizations are activating right. to really engage around this issue. And I, you know, I like to think, I mean, I hope this is true, that Republicans have kind of wakened the sleeping giant, right? That there was this level of passion that as long as people thought the Affordable Care Act was safe and as long as they didn't have to worry too much about it, you know, could let lie. And Republicans have really poked through that there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happens, I guess, the other thing that we're, we're going to be looking for is the budget and <laughs> what they're going to try to do to Medicaid through the budget. Um, what should people be looking out for in the next few months going forward? So, I mean, I would say, procedurally speaking, it's really tricky. They definitely have one, want to pass another budget resolution because they'd like to get to tax cuts. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons they were so desperate to pass some kind of ACA repeal is they really wanted to lock in those tax cuts for the wealthy now through health care. And then they didn't, then they could go back and cut even deeper when they took up quote unquote tax reform, right? Yeah. So the beauty of, of their health care bill is that they could cut taxes for the wealthy pay for those cuts with health care cuts for poor and middle-class families, lock in those cuts, and then come back and cut even deeper. I think it's an open question how they go from here, but they have definitely laid their cards on the table. They want to see deep, deep cuts to health care for low- and middle-class people, Medicaid, Affordable Care Act, but regardless, deep cuts to these programs, to pay for tax cuts for the wealthy, and that's not going to go away. So even if we kind of formally somehow move away from ACA repeal, I think you're absolutely right that people should be, we can't let our guard down because we know what they want to do. They're going to keep coming back for Medicaid. They're going to keep coming back for any way where they can, you know, really have this incredible transfer of wealth away from low and middle class people to the wealthy. And I don't, I don't think that's going to stop. We're going to fight that battle. We're going to fight that battle until people who support affordable care regain, you know, the levers of government. Excellent. And how can people keep up with you and with your work? So you can check us out at nwhn.org. You can follow us on Twitter at the NWHN. You can follow us, um, Raising Women's Voices, at raisingwomenvoices.net, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at RWD for Healthcare. And we're, we've got a pretty active social media presence, and we have got a great, let me just give a quick shout out to the RWD team. We have really had a great, great team in terms of coming up with social media shareable graphics with these that distill these really crazy, wonky terms down into something that's easy to share, easy to get. So, yeah, check us out. 
Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayebois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.